Let me invite you to stand with me, if you will. Uh, I'm going to say the phrase, Christ the Lord is risen today. And I'd like you to say very loudly, hallelujah. Can you do that this morning? Is it all right? Not too early for that? All right, here we go. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. All right. You know, the Bible talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in many places. In the Old Testament, before Jesus was ever born, we're given a hint of the resurrection. In the New Testament, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we hear the story. We can read it exactly play by play what happened on that first Easter morning. And then after the Gospels and after Jesus ascended to heaven, we have reference after reference after reference throughout the New Testament. And even into the book of Revelation, in heaven itself, there's a focus on the fact that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was raised from the dead. Today our scripture passage comes from Revelation, uh, not Revelation, Romans chapter 1. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1 as we look at what the Bible says about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read for you verse 3 and verse 4 of chapter 1 of Romans which says this, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is how we go from celebrating a physical birth, like Mrs. Huffman and all of us, to celebrating being born again, not of a mother, but of the spirit and into the kingdom of God. A little bit later in chapter 1 of Romans, which is our focus today, we find these words in verse number 16. The words are on the screen. I'd like for you to read them out loud with me, if you will. Here we go. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so our Heavenly Father, today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, the most important event in the history of all history, the most important event in all of humanity, the most important event in our lives when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and even the most important event in our life if we've not yet come to faith, because that is our only hope to be forgiven of our sin, our only hope to enter into heaven, our only hope for eternal life. And so today, our Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us to better understand the resurrection of Christ, to better understand our need, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us, and to embrace it as our own if we've never done so even before, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So today is Easter, and in Romans chapter 1, it talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's something else significant about today. Today is April 1st, or April Fool's Day. Has anybody noticed that already? Today is April Fool's Day. I got to thinking, how often does April Fool's Day fall on Easter? Does anybody know the last time April Fool's Day was on Easter Sunday? 1956. Before I was ever born. Al, I don't know, was that before you were born? Yes. Yes, okay. So I just want to make sure uh, how far back we go here. But 1956. It will happen again in the year 2029. But every so often, in this case, it's been quite a while uh, since Easter was celebrated uh, on April Fool's Day. Now, according to the Internet, where we know that everything must be true, uh, on Wikipedia, it says this about April Fool's Day. 
April Fool's Day is an annual celebration in some countries commemorated on April 1st by playing practical jokes, harmless pranks, and by spreading hoaxes upon one's neighbor. The jokes and their victims are called April Fools. And people playing an April Fool's joke often expose their prank by shouting April Fool at the unsuspecting victim. Traditionally, and I say that emphatically, traditionally, the joking stops at midday. Amen? I'll be when service is over, we're done. And although this has been popular since the 19th century, it is not a public holiday in any country. I can't believe it. Let's push for that in America. We'll do that. Well, I found another place on the Internet where it had some, some family-friendly, fun ideas for April Fool's. Here's, here's, here's a couple for you. The first is a picture you see there. Uh, is you take a sleeping child and you relocate them in the night, perhaps a, a son to, a, to his sister's bed or maybe to the front porch swing or out to the car, depending on how you feel and how much you can pick them up. You know, that might play into it. Another thing you can do is to give them a bowl of cereal. We say, what's so special about that? Well, you make the bowl of cereal the night before and put it in the freezer. And then when they come out to, to get their bowl of cereal, it's all frozen together. That's a good idea, you know, for, for, for next year, maybe. And then, uh, you know, you want to give your child a, a glass of juice for in the morning. So, so you give them that glass of juice, but instead of, instead of juice, you put jello in there. And so they go to try to suck it through the straw, and it's just jello. So, so here I've given you three wonderful ideas for next year on April Fool's Day at your house. Say amen to that, right? All right. Well, while we might have fun with April Fool's pranks, and, and I, I'm fine with, with all those fun things that go on, it is no fun to be a fool in the eyes of Scripture. And so today I want to talk to you because just as the Bible speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 1, in that same chapter the Bible also speaks of being a fool. Now, Mama always taught me growing up it's not polite to call somebody a fool. Amen? And even the Scripture teaches us not to call somebody a fool. However, the Scripture does point out People who are foolish and people whom the Bible calls a fool. So in, in Romans chapter 1 today, we're going to look through this passage and I want to share with you a message that I'm going to call, Don't Be an April Fool. Now I realize in saying that, that the risk is, I'm running the risk of offending somebody or hurting somebody's feelings. Now I've, I've, I've kind of gone over this in my mind and on my heart and I've, I've even done the Lord, are you sure this is where you want me to go this morning? And at the same time, I've been reminded that these are not my words, and if I ever preach my words, I'm in trouble to start with. But these are scriptural words and scriptural principles about being foolish or about being a fool. So here in Romans chapter 1, I won't read for you the whole chapter. I'm going to make several references, and the references are listed in your listening guide on the back of your bulletin this morning. So I would invite you to, to look through Romans chapter 1 with me at four facts about fools. Four facts about fools that we find in Romans chapter 1. The first fact that we see is this, and that is that fools know who God is. Fools know who God is. It's not a matter of there is no God in their eyes, but they know who He is. The Bible speaks of people who know who God is, and yet they continue to act as fools. The Bible makes it clear that God has revealed himself to everyone. 
He's revealed himself to the wisest of the wise. He's revealed himself to the foolishness of the fools. And he's revealed himself to everyone in between. God makes himself known and God makes his presence and his identity clear. There are six different ways that God reveals himself listed in Romans chapter 1. Let me point those out for you very briefly. We see in verse 2 that the prophets of the Old Testament reveal God. Because God promised the gospel. Remember the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is it? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day. And in the Old Testament, through his prophets, God promised the gospel. It says there in verse 2, beforehand, before it ever happened, through his prophets, through the, the men that God spoke to, who then spoke to the people to let them know in advance, this is coming. God is revealing himself. God is revealing the gospel. Also, we see, secondly, that the Bible or Scripture reveals God. It says beforehand, verse 2 again, beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. So as men were inspired by God to write the Holy Scriptures that we have as the Old Testament and the New Testament, but here it's referring to the Old Testament, God moved and worked through the writers of Scripture, some prophets, some, some not, but, but God moved through them in order to reveal himself so that we might know the identity of God and know who God is. Thirdly, we see that the resurrection of Jesus reveals God. Today, we celebrate Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today. Everybody says, hallelujah. We celebrate that today. And it is that resurrection, in the resurrection of Christ, we see that there is a God. And it says several other things about Jesus here. For example, in verse 3 it says that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh. So in a human sense, Jesus qualifies to serve as the king of Israel by, the, by being a descendant physically of David. But we also see that Jesus, in verse 4, is declared to be the Son of God. He's both human and He is God. He is the God-man. And it is in His resurrection that we see His identity as the God-man. It says in verse 4 that Jesus was raised from the dead. And notice how He was raised. In power and by the Spirit of holiness. In power by God's Spirit, Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but I've seen, I've seen quite a few people die in my time over the years. As a pastor in the hospital, I've seen family members die. I've been there when they breathed their last. I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. And throughout my experience with others, nobody has ever came and reported to me that they've seen someone raised from the dead. Yet the Bible says, and the people of that day testify, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. How? What is it? Two ways. In power and by the Spirit. And it is that same power and that same Spirit that gives us our hope that one day we also will be raised from the dead. It also tells us here in verse 4 that Jesus is Lord. He is the descendant of David, hum humanly speaking. He is the Son of God, spiritually speaking. But He is 100% God. He is Lord. He is uh, God Himself in physical form and God when He was raised from the dead. And He is God in eternity right now in heaven. That reveals to us who God is. Fourthly, we see that righteousness reveals God. If you look down in verses 16 and 17... Uh, we see that, that it, is, uh, it, is, it is our notion of right and wrong inside of our hearts. 
Now, now, our parents teach us right and wrong. Our grandparents teach us right and wrong. At school, they teach us right and wrong. The laws of the land teach us right and wrong. And all those things are helpful, but there's also a sense of a notion of right and wrong in our hearts, in our spirits. We know certain things are right, and we know certain things are wrong, and that is because God has established righteousness, this right acting, as a way to reveal himself. Now, it says in verse number 16 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and that is resurrection power. It also says in verses 16 and 17 that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. How do we know that God is righteous? Because of what God did in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in verse 17, it tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. And so we put these together and we see the power of God in the resurrection of Christ and that reveals the righteousness of God that is then transferred to the people when they put their faith and their belief and their hope in Jesus Christ. And that righteousness reveals to us God. When people see the people of God and they see the way that God has impacted our lives, that is a, a revelation of righteousness to people. Also notice in verse 18, I don't like this one but it's true, it's in the Bible. That is that wrath reveals God. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And so the fact that there is a wrath for sin points to the fact that there is a God of creation. And so wrath reveals God. And then lastly, in verse 20, we see that creation reveals God. Creation itself is a revelation. God is saying by all that he created, here I am. The creation reveals the fact that there must be a creator. If you'll notice, it says in verse 20, it speaks about the invisible attributes of God, namely, his eternal power has been clearly perceived. In other words, through creation, the fact that God is invisible to us, we can't see God, but his creation reveals to us, notice, the eternal power of God. We look around and we see, we see the earth and we look through the telescope and we see the universe and we look through the microscope and we see the, the cell and all the things that we can see very small. All of these point to the fact that there is a powerful creator and he is eternally powerful. In fact, the word power uh, occurs three times in Romans 1. It, it occurs in verse 4, speaking about the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It takes power to raise up Jesus. In verse 16, it speaks about the power of salvation, the fact that, that through what Jesus has done for us, the power is there for us to be saved. And then here we see that it is the power of creation as God spoke. And the Bible says that when God spoke in Genesis 1-1, three things came into existence, time, space, and matter. That's power. And it says here in Romans 1 and many other places, that just looking out at the creation of God tells us Although we can't see God, we see his fingerprints and the fingerprints of his eternal power all over creation. Also in verse 20, we see that his invisible attributes, namely, namely his divine nature, has been clearly perceived. Verse 19 says it's plain, and verse, and verse 19 also says it's been shown by God, it is revealed by God. So we look at creation, we see, first of all, it takes power to create this. And secondly, we look at the nature of God in creation. His goodness, His creativity, His love, his, his, all the attributes of who 
God is. And so what we see here is the fact that, that fools know who God is is because everybody knows who God is because God has revealed himself in such a way that all of us are clearly confronted with the reality that there is a God who reveals himself to us through his son, through the world that we live in, through his prophets, through his word. And because of that, uh, we know in our hearts, intrinsically, because God has created us this way, to know there is a God out there. And yet there are some, even in the face of that, that, that say that there is no God. In fact, uh, in, in Psalm 14, in verse number 1, it says, The fool, speaking of fools, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Despite all the confrontation and the revelation from God to us, the fool still says in his heart, there is no God. And that brings us to the second fact about fools that we see here in, in Romans chapter 1. And that is that fools reject God. They know who he is, and yet they reject him. It says in verses 20 and 21 that, that fools know who God is because God makes it clear and God has shown it to them and God has shown it to us and the whole world sees the fact that there is a God out there but they do not, it says in verse 21, honor Him as God and then in verse 21 it says they do not give thanks to Him as God. So a fool is somebody who looks at all of creation and then says there is no God and they don't honor God, they don't acknowledge God, they don't worship God. Even though God has made it so plain and so clear that all of us might see it. Now, in following this passage of Scripture, we see starting here in, in verses 18 to 22, that there's a progression of rejecting the gospel. What happens when we fail to acknowledge that there is God, and so we turn and walk away? We reject the fact that there is God. So we're going we're gonna to live our own way. We're going to live in such a way that, that, that we're going to ignore God and we're going to reject God. There's a progression that takes place that we see here in Scripture, and I believe we see it played out in our world and, and we have throughout history. The first thing is that, that rejection of God leads to ungodliness and unrighteousness. When we reject God, the next thing is we start acting in ways that are, first of all, ungodly and then unrighteous. If there is no God, then there is no godliness. If there is no God and no godliness, I can act however I want to. There's no right and there's no wrong. What, what you think is right for you, that's right for you. And what you think is right for you, and that's right for you. Now, if you're right and they're right are at odds with each other, that's okay because right is right and wrong is wrong in, in your own eyes. There's no right and wrong because there is no God. That's the first thing that happens. But ungodliness and unrighteousness then leads to suppressing the truth. Also in verse 18, we see that. If there is no gospel, if there is no creator, if there is no God, then there is no ultimate truth. We've all just gotten here some way and somehow, and we're each on our own. And so, so there is no truth. You can believe whatever you want to. In fact, whatever you believe is situational, what's right for you or what's wrong for you, whatever that is. And in fact, we, we see this played out. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in, in the message, there's a new phrase out. You may or may not have heard it. The phrase has become the 2016 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year. You don't believe me? Look it up on the Internet because it's true if it's on the Internet, right? We well, can look it up because I did because I'd never heard this. But the word is post-truth. 
The 2016 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year. What, is, what does post-truth mean? It simply means this, that we respond to things. Post-truth means that we respond to things not based on what the observable facts are, but based on how we feel about it. Now, that'll get you in trouble, won't it? That's a whole other sermon right there. But, but ungodliness and unrighteousness leads to a suppressing of the truth because there is no truth if there is no gospel. And a suppressing of the truth leads, in verse 21, to futile thinking. What does it mean to be futile or futile? What does that mean? According to the dictionary, to be futile is incapable of producing any useful result. It's something that is pointless, ineffective, useless, and yes, foolish. There's no foundation of truth. You do whatever you want to do, and it may be different than what somebody else does. So futile thinking simply means useless thinking. So you've, you've rejected God. You practice ungodliness and unrighteousness. You now suppress the truth. That leads to futile thinking, and futile thinking leads to a darkened heart. Verse 21, a darkened heart. And so there's no light of the gospel in the heart of mankind. There's no light of the gospel in the heart of a fool. And so, so the heart is now darkened. There's no influence of the gospel. There's no influence of Scripture. There's no movement of the Holy Spirit because this person has, has, has known who God is but rejected and turned and walked away. And in following the progression, it leads to a darkened heart. And lastly, a darkened heart in verse 22 leads to a false claim of wisdom and an actual becoming of a fool. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 14, verse 1. And by the time a person finishes this progression, they're right back at where Psalm 14, 1 says. You, you wind up being foolish because you have rejected the obvious revelation of who God is. Now, I would say this. Rejecting God is foolish. I don't know if you agree with that or not this morning. I hope you agree. You're in a Christian church on Easter Sunday morning. I hope you agree. But rejecting God is foolish, and yet we live in a world where we could name situation after situation after situation where people reject God. In our culture, in our politics, in our businesses, in, in our social circles, in our uh, celebrities, uh, we see people rejecting God. Now, the, four, the third fact about fools here in Romans chapter 1 and that is that fools replace God. Fools replace God. Verses 23 to 25 talks about this. And, and there, there are, are four things that are mentioned here with which fools replace God. Uh, on one hand, uh, fools replace the glory of God with images of people and animals. Somebody who's a fool, according to the Bible, will replace the glorious God of the universe. And, and glory is the, the, the shine of God, the radiance of God, the, the beauty of God, the, the acknowledgement of God. All of that is now replaced with images of people and animals. Verse 23 says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So I got to thinking, where, where, where in the world do we see things like this? On, one hand, uh, if you go to certain parts of the world, you see these really large statues of Buddha. You ever seen these statues of Buddha? I think it's very interesting that, that people worship Buddha in, in Buddhism, and Buddha was an atheist. He did not believe in God. He, per, he put forth a philosophy of life. And so the Buddhist religion is actually an atheistic religion, 
And so, so there are statues, and this is a, 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 a very large statue. I don't know if you can tell by the picture or not. A very large statue of Buddha. Uh, and, and so uh, they began to, uh, to worship uh, images of uh, man. And then talking about images of animals. Are there any images of animals that we could be guilty of worshiping? And I'm, 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 I guess I'm as guilty as anybody, but, but one image might be something like this. Uh, the Carolina Panthers. I mean, Panthers are animals, and, and they have worship services at the ball games on Sundays and, and things like that. So, 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 you know, if we're not careful, though, you know, there's some truth in, in me showing you this image because it's not just the animal there, but, but there are things that, that we give ourselves to in a worship-like way. And if we do that to the rejection of God, then certainly we can be guilty of replacing God's glory with images of people and animals. Secondly, we replace the truth about God with a lie. Verse 25 tells us that. It says they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And so this exchange that takes place, this replacing uh, that takes place, truth uh, goes out the window and a lie. So I got to thinking, what are some lies that, that, that people tell? What are some, some lies that, that, that kind of tie to God but, but actually don't tie to God, a replacing of God? Well, one lie that people tell is this, that, uh, that, 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 that everybody is going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven is one lie. And, uh, and, and so, so the, when you hear people talk about the fact that everybody's going to go to heaven one day, that's a lie. You can look up in many places in the Scripture. The Scripture says that, that there's one way, one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. And so when people talk about everybody going to heaven, we can say, yes, heaven is available Salvation is available to all, every person, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every nationality, every creed, every, every, every nation under the sun. It's available, but it's not automatic. It's given to those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another lie people tell is that there's no such thing as sin. What's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. But who are you to tell me that, that, that what I'm doing is a sin? Who, who am I to tell, to tell you that what you're doing is a sin? There, you know, there is no such thing as sin. When the Bible makes it very clear that there's none righteous and that all have sinned. And so we have to be very careful with, with those two lies. Those are very prominent lies that have replaced the truth about God with a lie. And then a third lie that, that is told, and, and you just saw it a second ago, on the History Channel, uh, we're told that we're the offspring of ancient aliens. There's no God, so how do we get here? Well, aliens showed up. Have you, has anybody seen the show, Ancient Aliens on the History Channel? And I've watched a few of them with great humor, and I've thought to myself, it takes more faith to believe that an alien showed up <laughs> than it ever does to think of an all-loving, all-powerful God creating everything that there is. Well, there's a replacement there. And then thirdly, fools replace God, uh, they replace the worship of God, the Creator, with the worship of the creation. Instead of worshiping the Creator, we worship instead the creation. It says that there also in verse number 25. Eric Geiger, who is with Lifeway Christian Resources, says this. On May 27, 2009, the world's largest worship venue opened in Arlington, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. 30,000 parking places. 
the ability to hold 110,000 people, a state-of-the-art sound system, a gigantic center-hung, high-definition television screen that measures 160 feet long by 72 feet tall. It is the perfect location to gather, sing, shout, cry, clap, and feel the energy that occurs when that many souls come together for the same hope of mine. You see the picture on the screen there. What church does this massive edifice belong to? The owner of this $1.3 billion monster in Arlington with its retractable roof and almost limitless possibilities for usage is none other than Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys. All year long, men and women flood to this stadium ready to support and cheer their favorite team or band or player. They've come for one reason and one reason alone. They've come to worship, to worship football, to worship a monster truck, to worship motocross, a singer, a band, a soccer team, etc. Even those men and women who do not worship their maker can be seen with their bodies painted in team colors, becoming emotionally affected for hours and days by how the outcome of a game came on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Monday night. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not against sports and gathering for games. And if you know me, I'm available for any Carolina game that you want to invite me to. Okay, I understand that. But, but also understand the point here. And the point is that there are those that reject God, and yet with a worship-like fervor, they replace the worship of God with the worship of a team or the worship of a singer or the worship of an event of some kind. So replace the worship of God, the Creator, with the worship of His creation. And fourthly, replace the serving of the Creator with the serving of the creature. It goes hand in hand with the third one. If you're going to replace God with an event like a, your favorite football team, then you replace the serving of God with the serving of the team. You give your, your time, you give your energy, you give your money, you give your influence. You, you cheer for your team and you try to influence others to pull for your team or to pull against another team. And all of these things are worship-like qualities and service-like qualities that if we don't give them to God and we give them to others, we're elevating those things above the place that God holds for us. And one last fact about fools that we see here in verses uh, 18 to 24, and that is that fools will face the wrath of God. I said this earlier. I don't, I don't like this part, but it's a reality. It's Scripture, and God never checked it with me to see if it was all right to put in the Bible. Amen? But fools face the wrath of God. Notice wrath, the definition of wrath is the appropriate consequences or punishment for sin. I want you to notice how wrath is described here in Romans chapter 1. The first thing it says is that the wrath of God is revealed. Again, it's revealed. It comes from God. It is revealed from heaven or from God. So, so that wrath, as we read in the scripture, is not a man-made concept. It's not a bunch of people that sat around and said, well, how can we make God look mean and, and sit in the, in the judge's chair with a long white beard and a, and a gavel in one hand and a bolt of lightning in the other waiting to strike somebody down? That's not a, that's, that may be our image of God, but that's not the biblical image of God. How does God reveal His wrath to us? Not us determining what God's wrath is, but how does God reveal it to us? Well, it says it comes... From heaven or from God. Notice also the second thing about wrath is that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this is important for us all to recognize. That God's wrath comes against ungodliness and unrighteousness. 
Now, it's real easy for us who call ourselves Christians and believers. It's real easy to, to point at this group or that behavior or this TV show or that song or this movie and to say, go get them, God. Isn't it easy for us to do that? Don't be too holy on me here. If we're not careful, we find it easy to do that when we fail to recognize the total meaning of what it, when it says the wrath of God is revealed against what part of ungodliness and unrighteousness? All of it. All of it. That means my ungodliness and my unrighteousness, of which there is much. And it means your ungodliness and your unrighteousness, of which there is much. And in a sense, we can be thankful that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness because it points all of us, no matter who we are, to the fact that we are all separated from God and under the wrath of God and we're in need of a Savior. The wrath of God serves to inform us and to motivate us that we might be open to the fact that the God who has wrath because of His righteousness and holiness is the same God in His love and compassion provides for us the need that we have of a Savior for deliverance. That's the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the wrath of God is, though that, we're, is that we're all sinners. And when Jesus died on the cross, it was for all people of all time. And there's no one person above any other person in saying, I'm better than you or you're worse than me. Because in the eyes of a holy God, when wrath is given against all unrighteousness and all un ungodliness, we have no escape whatsoever. But that's where the gospel becomes good news. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Let me give you three reasons that fools face the wrath of God. Because it doesn't just describe what wrath is. It tells us why. Why would God take out his wrath on people? And he calls people fools. Why does he do that? First of all, we see in verse 18. Fools face the wrath of God because they know the truth. But they suppress it in ungodliness and unrighteousness. They know the truth. But they suppress it. They reject it. They turn away from it. Secondly, fools face the wrath of God. Verse number 20, because of God's clear revelation. And it says in verse 20, they are without excuse. Nobody will ever stand before God and say, I didn't know. I didn't know. And God's going to say, here's six revelations or more that I've given you. I've given you creation. I've given you my word. I've given you my son. I've given you the prophets. I've given you all these things. And you reject me. You have no excuse whatsoever. You ever faced a child that failed to do the right thing or the thing he was instructed to do, and he's got every excuse under the sun? I was that child, by the way. <laughs> and the parent looks at that child and says, I know what I've told you. I know how clear it was. There is no excuse for not doing what you were told. There's no excuse for not knowing. There's no excuse whatsoever. And so there are those who will stand before God without an excuse, and they'll face the wrath of God because they've seen clearly what God has revealed but have chosen to ignore it and reject it. Thirdly, fools face the wrath of God because ultimately God gave them what they wanted. Verse 24 says that He gave them over to pursue impure lusts and the dishonoring of their bodies. 
Ultimately, God just says, you know, you, 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 you reject me, you turn, you walk away, you suppress the truth, your minds are darkened, and you just go your own way. And eventually God says, go your way, but face your consequences. And it's a terrible, tragic, sad thing when that happens. And it will be terrible and sad when people stand before God having known who He is. They've chosen to reject Him. Well, let me conclude real quickly with this. April Fool's Day traditionally is harmless and full of pranks and great fun. But biblically, it's not harmless to be a fool. Biblically, there is great harm to a soul or to a self or to others by persisting in foolish, unbelieving, God-rejecting behavior. And this foolishness does not cease automatically at midday. But we're each called to set aside the foolishness of rejecting God and come to Him through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what, what would a definition of an April Fool be as I've described it today? An April Fool knows there is a God deep in their heart. Even though they may say it outwardly, I believe in all of our hearts, inwardly, we know there is a God. He makes sure that we do. An April Fool rejects God, His identity, and His authority. An April Fool replaces God with lesser things than who God is. And an April Fool is someone who faces the wrath of God. And what a terrible thing that will be. And what a beautiful thing it is that God loves us in our foolishness. He loves us in our sins so much that He told us how to escape. He told us how to get out of the wrath. He told us how we could bypass the wrath. Not by doing some great religious thing, not by doing what's right in our own eyes, but by turning from our sin. I put three things on, on your listening guide. Don't be a fool. First of all, confess foolishness to God. The Bible says we're all sinners. And to confess to God is simply say, Lord, I've, I've been foolish in how I've acted because I know I'm a sinner. And I've turned away from you. And I want to repent. That word repent simply means to turn and change it into a new direction. Lord, I want to stop walking away from you and start walking towards you. I want to turn away from living for myself the way I see fit. It's a foolish way. And I want to start walking after your way and thoroughly believe, simply to believe that you don't have to check off this great religious list. You don't have to dress in a certain way. You don't have to, to, to give a certain amount of money. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't do good enough to get there. All you have to do is believe. It could be no more simple. And we celebrate that on this day of all days, the day of the resurrection of Christ, recognizing that while it is so simple that all we have to do is believe, but to God it was so costly that He gave His own Son, His only Son, the Lord Jesus, to bear, to bear the penalty that we deserve, to come under the wrath that was ours. Because His judgment comes against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And my unrighteousness and my ungodliness and yours as well was placed on Jesus and He bore it for us. The one who was innocent bore the ungodliness of all of us. And it's simply by believing in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ that we are set free from the foolishness of rejecting God. And we're set free to eternal life with God. That's the beauty of the message of the gospel on April Fool's Day.
and every day. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? I could not let us leave this occasion without speaking directly to a couple of folks that are here today. One is, one group of folks that are here are believers and followers of Christ. And you know that what I've shared with you from the scripture is true. And you think back to that moment when you turned from the foolishness of rejecting God in your own life and you trusted Jesus as your Savior. And I hope that on this day, you'll look back and celebrate that great life-transforming moment. And I hope that you will rejoice and celebrate. And I also want to ask, if you are here and you have had that life-changing transformation, I pray that you would pray for and look for others who've not gotten there yet. And in what their Bible calls their foolishness, They've not come to the place of embracing the gospel. Maybe their hearts are darkened. Maybe their, their ears have been deaf. But, but somehow, someway, could God use you to impact that family member, that friend, that neighbor, that coworker, that, that person that you love so dearly with the wonderful message of the gospel? And then lastly, I want to speak to those of you that are here today. And I know there are some. I may not know your name. I may not know your face. But I know in any group this size, and as well as in our next service in a few moments, there are people that are here that have never trusted Christ. Maybe you've rejected Him outright and shook your fist in His face and said, God, I want nothing to do with you. Or maybe you've just neglected that, even that burning desire in your heart. you just neglected to make things right with God. Whatever the case, if you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, the Bible says that His wrath stands against the all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, and that includes you. But in His love and in His compassion, God has provided a way. And I'm going to whisper a prayer out loud. If it reflects the desire of your heart to have your sins forgiven, your ungodliness and unrighteousness made clean, I would invite you to pray this prayer in your heart to the Lord. It's not a magic formula. You're not praying it to me. It's between you and God. Something like this. Lord Jesus... I thank you that you love me enough to tell me of my sin and the foolishness of rejecting God. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love me enough to become the wrath of God on my behalf when you died on the cross as a penalty for my sins. And Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross in my place and for my sins. I believe that you were buried and on the third day were raised from the dead. And right now, Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. I invite you to come into my life and forgive my sin. I invite you to lead me all the days of my life and take me to heaven one day as I turn from my sin and follow after you in faith. I thank you, Jesus for saving me. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? Al's going to lead us. We're going to sing our last song, our hymn of invitation. If you're here every week, you know we do this every service. But if you've, maybe your first time here, we, every, every time we meet, we end our service with a hymn, a song of invitation. We invite people to do something, whatever it is that God places on their heart, based on what God's Word has said to them that day. Maybe that's right where you are, making a commitment to the Lord. 
Maybe that's to, to come forward. I'll be available. And Rodney, come on down. Rodney's going to be available too. And if you want to speak to somebody or have somebody pray with you, then you make your way down. Even while we're singing, we'll be happy to take a moment and give you some words of encouragement. Uh, maybe you prayed and trusted Christ as your Savior as I led that prayer a moment ago. This would be a great time to come and let somebody know of the difference that's taking place in your life. As we sing, make this your prayer to the Lord. Make this your opportunity to do what God has called you to do.